The study originally looked at four laboratory parameters that could be affected within the first few months of initiating treatment. And so the, the good news is that the data was reassuring in that there were no clinically significant changes that were observed in monitoring. And that includes what you might expect. So cholesterol, mm-hmm. creatinine phosphokinase, and the CBC, including neutrophil and platelet count at 16 weeks. But because as a class effect, you can see these lab abnormalities, it's still important to monitor for them. But even thinking globally with other ACK inhibitors in general, looking at their data sets, even when there are biochemical abnormalities, they're not necessarily associated with adverse clinical outcome in the patient. But knowing that these could be affected, it is important to monitor. But it is reassuring when we think about TIC2 pathway that if there's less of that potential for these lab abnormalities, this would be an attractive safety feature mm. um, for patients and for those of us who prescribe for patients. Because whenever we're thinking, we often prescribe these biologic agents without concern so much about end organ toxicity. The lack of frequent blood work monitoring gives this risk perception in terms of risk profile for the patients where they're very comfortable with that. So this idea now that you're taking an oral medication with potential end organ toxicity and having frequent blood work monitoring, it can be a concern, but important to think about that data and also the selectivity of the pathway that hopefully will protect against some of these abnormalities being observed. Hi, I'm Dr. Joseph. I'm Dr. Gita Yadith, and you're listening to the Skin and Joints Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome to part two of the Skin and Joints podcast, It Takes Two to Take Two. This is Aaron Sahoda, your host. Let's continue our conversation with Dr. Marissa Joseph and Dr. Gita Yadav. Dr. Joseph is a pediatrician and a dermatologist from Toronto and completed her training at the Hospital for Sick Children, followed by a dermatology residency at U of T. She's completed a master's in community health at the Dalla School of Public Health. And she's a full-time academic faculty at the University of Toronto. She practices in general adult, pediatric, and surgical dermatology. Her clinical research includes inflammatory skin disorders such as psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, and HS. And our next guest expert, who's also from Toronto, Dr. Gita Yadav, an expert in both medical and cosmetic dermatology. As a second-generation Canadian, her interest in underserved communities and treating BIPOC patients was inspired by her childhood travels to India. She holds a Master's in International Health from Johns Hopkins and completed her dermatology residency at the University of Toronto, where she still teaches today. When she's not working, she volunteers as an alumni governor at U of T. She loves running, dancing, and spending time with her husband and three young children. And she's also an Instagram superstar, if you've recently seen her video about this episode. So some are thinking, those who are listening, well, Tick 2s they're part of the Jack family. Could you tell our listeners what exactly is the relationship? Is a Tick 2 inhibitor basically a modified Jack inhibitor and that they're basically the same mechanism of action? Any resolution or thoughts about Ticks versus Jacks? I mean, I guess I would say that like immune-mediated inflammatory diseases are governed by a host of inflammatory signaling pathways. And the TIC2 pathway or the tyrosine kinase pathway, it plays a role in that intracellular signaling of these pro-inflammatory cytokines that we know are involved in psoriasis, like IL-23, IL-12, and Mm -hmm. type 1 interferon. And so 
the way that these tick two and jack signals kind of interact together to mediate these cytokine receptors is part of how they are both different and similar. Mm, interesting. And these downstream targets, do you know, for example, the specificity is of a tick two? Does it hit all the jack one, jack two, jack three? pathways? Because I know that there's conversations around the side effect profile of JAK inhibitors and the monitoring that's required, cholesterol levels, platelet counts, etc. Well, I think it's important to look at how these pathways are similar, but also how they're different, and particularly as it relates to the safety profile. The tyrosine kinase pathway doesn't seem to have the downstream effects of the JAK1, 2, 3. And I think looking at the differences is important because you want to look at whether or not some of the treatment emergent adverse events are relevant with tick 2 blockade. It doesn't seem like that is an issue with tick 2 inhibition. I think delving into that and differentiating the mechanisms of action is important to evaluate that safety piece. So tick 2 inhibitors don't have the downstream-like effects on JAK1, 2, and 3. And this may confer a different safety profile than the JAK inhibitor class. Now we talk about inhibiting the tick 2 pathway, but looking at specifically some recent trials that were conducted on a oral molecule called ducravacitinib. And I always wondered how they come up with these names. They're very interesting. There's a couple of trials. One's called Poetic PSO1 and Poetic PSO2. So they're pivotal phase three trials that were conducted on this new oral molecule. Could you briefly tell our listeners about generally what the trials sought to demonstrate? These trials are looking at efficacy and safety with a placebo control, but also comparing it to a permalast, which is a relevant, I think, comparator in that it's an oral medication that we use to treat plaque psoriasis. It's a phase three double-blinded trial, and the main endpoints were, you know, typical endpoints of the number of patients or percentage of patients who achieve a PASI 75 response or a physician's global assessment of zero or one at week 16. You know, one of the things I wanted to say about the design of these trials that I think was important is that the population that was in these studies had a higher cardiovascular risk profile mm-hmm. than, than the base population. And so you already had a group that potentially could have shown some of those downstream effects that we worry about with PANJAC inhibitors in these studies. But actually, we didn't see that. One of those endpoints was looking at safety and adverse Mm. events in the treatment group for decravacitinib, six milligrams. The adverse events were lower than actually the placebo and the Premolast groups. And that was at all those time points at like 16 weeks and on the long-term extension. So from a safety point of view, I think these phase three studies were able to reassure probably many clinicians who are going to be looking to possibly using this medication in the future in terms of uh, that risk profile on some of those big adverse events. We didn't see any increased signal there. So considering the baseline population, which I think is a very relevant point that you brought up to this conversation is they had a higher risk profile coming into it from a cardiovascular perspective. But when you compare some of the AEs that the tick 2s exhibit, we find in the six milligram category, adverse events were less than placebo and less than impermalast, as you mentioned. Now, what did the results show at 16 weeks? The time period they assessed as seeing a difference from baseline. How did it compare with premolast? So in terms of efficacy, with the primary endpoints, there was a significant difference between a PASI 75 response 
with cravacitinib, six milligrams daily compared with placebo, but also compared with a Premalast standard dosing, about 58% of patients achieving a PASI 75 at week 16 with ducrevacitinib and 35% achieving the 75 with a Premalast and 13% uh, with placebo. Okay. So it looks at the primary endpoint at PASI 75 and at week 16. As you mentioned, one of the primary endpoints, it was significant in terms of the improvement shown by the intervention to cravacitinib compared to, I guess, the current standard when it comes to oral systemics for skin clearance and psoriasis. So Aaron, I wanted to just go back to a point in terms of efficacy. So a comment, a comment I wanted to make was also in terms of the base population that close to 40% of people in the POETIC PSO1 trial had previously used biologic therapy. And I think Mm -hmm. that increasingly us as clinicians, we really are looking at real world evidence in terms of how these medications translate into patient results. Because when, you know, we are used to in this day and age talking a lot about PASI 90. And so here we are having a conversation about PASI 75, and that is very comparable to a premolast. And the data that we have for a Premalast, but, you know, in this very competitive landscape for therapies, for psoriasis, we're used to talking about PASI 90. And I think it is sort of just important to note that PASI 75 number in the context of people who probably had tough to treat disease to begin with. So I take sort of that number with a little bit of a grain of salt. That's an excellent point you bring. So it's 40% that had an intolerance or failure to a biologic who were enrolled as a part of the population. Yeah, approximately. approximately. And, okay. um, and yeah, and so anyhow, I thought that was important to qualify as we have these conversations around PASI 75. That's going to be relevant because towards the end, I'm going to ask you about the implications in the real world. If this therapy was to be released in Canada tomorrow, where would you kind of see it fit in? So I want to just deep dive a little bit more on that safety and side effect conversation. And we know that tolerability is definitely a concern for any patient on a chronic therapy. We know especially for Agents like Apremolast, and I remember, I think it was Dr. Jennifer Beaker who came up with one of her residences paper on an algorithm for managing the AEs of Apremolast, which sometimes can be difficult to kind of navigate. Just moving on then to a little bit more of a conversation around safety. What were some of the side effects were shown in the trial for Ducravacitinib? So some of the common side effects that we see are expected, like increased risk of upper respiratory tract infection and uh, nasopharyngitis. But there were no increase in MACE events or VTE cases compared to the placebo groups or the apremolast group. The apremolast group had the predictable side effects of increased GI, nausea, diarrhea, kind of side effects that we've seen with apremolast in our clinical practices. But overall, the percentage of patients that dropped out of the study because of adverse events was lower than those who dropped out who were on placebo. So I, I think the study has pretty successfully shown a healthy safety profile for this agent or this mechanism of action in psoriasis. I agree. I think the important thing is often in our practice, there's treatment discontinuation with the use of apremolast because of the gastrointestinal side effects. So it's nice that the data reflects that the discontinuation of ducravacitinib is actually less than placebo. So it seems like that's not a challenge that patients face in terms of adverse events that would force them to discontinue the medication. Okay. Okay. So from a practical perspective, crevacitinib potentially could have a cleaner profile than uh, Premalast in terms of the management aspect of it as well. 
I want to jump back and talk a little bit about, from a safety lens, understanding that there's no head-to-head trials in psoriasis. Comparing JIG2 and JAK inhibitors. How would you say they both compare from a you know safety lens, if we can even fairly make that comparison? Bring that, as you mentioned earlier, there's a higher selectivity for TIC2 versus the JAK1, 2, or 3 vectors. The comment that I was going to make was related to when bradalumab came out, I remember going through the specific four cases of completed suicide that led to that black box warning. And physicians want to know, even if the signal seems unlikely, even if the likelihood is low, they still want to understand what signals did come up. And so when it comes to VTE, the Ducravacitinib-treated group showed two VTE cases that's similar to what you would see in real-world psoriasis patient populations. So okay. that happened, but it wasn't above and beyond what one could expect given the patient population and the disease state that we were selecting for, you know, in this trial. But to dive into the specifics of those two cases, one of them was uh, a patient that developed aortic dissection with a PE. It's a 48-year-old male with a history of smoking, obesity, and hypertension. And the other was DVT in a patient with a history of factor V Leiden mutation and previous PE and smoking mm-hmm. and a COVID-19 infection. And so they're pretty complex cases. And I think it's hard to say that it was specifically drug-related, but those are the two cases that came up in the studies. And I think it is important for clinicians to kind of hone in and understand that because that is something that we worry about when treating our patients. And I mean, to give context, how many people were enrolled in this trial? I think it was, it was over a thousand, if I'm not mistaken. No, you're right. It was 1,221 patients. Okay. And that's a good point that you bring up in terms of just understanding the baseline population, understanding that maybe it was one out of an individual who had a higher baseline risk. So what and how often needs to be monitored at baseline and follow up with ducravacitinib? And I'm also thinking about what's the standard here we're comparing to maybe the JAK inhibitors. The study originally looked at four laboratory parameters that could be affected within the first few months of initiating treatment. And so the, the good news is that the data was reassuring in that there were no clinically significant changes that were observed in monitoring. And that includes what you might expect. So cholesterol, mm-hmm. creatinine phosphokinase, and the CBC, including neutrophil and platelet count at 16 weeks. But because as a class effect, you can see these lab abnormalities, it's still important to monitor for them. But even thinking globally with other ACK inhibitors in general, looking at their data sets, even when there are biochemical abnormalities, they're not necessarily associated with adverse clinical outcome in the patient. But knowing that these could be affected, it is important to monitor. But it is reassuring when we think about TIC2 pathway that if there's less of that potential for these lab abnormalities, this would be an attractive safety feature mm. um, for patients and for those of us who prescribe for patients. Because whenever we're thinking, we often prescribe these biologic agents without concern so much about end organ toxicity. The lack of frequent blood work monitoring gives this risk perception in terms of risk profile for the patients where they're very comfortable with that. So this idea now that you're taking an oral medication with potential end organ toxicity and having frequent blood work monitoring, it can be a concern, but important to think about that data and also the selectivity of the pathway that hopefully will protect against some of these abnormalities being observed. You make a good practical point about 
the involvement from a patient perspective and <clears throat> how often do you need to get these labs done. It's just one more thing for the patient to remember and engage when it's part of their treatment journey. So uh, it's definitely a key consideration. So moving on, oh, well, this cues the Ask the Expert segment as part of the Skin and Joints podcast. This is where we listen to you, our listeners from across the country, and we select a couple of questions. We had quite a few questions for both of you guys, but obviously with the time we're limited with, we've selected two that are representative of quite a significant number of questions that came in. First question I want to ask you, and this is from Jennifer in Calgary. People of color are often underrepresented in clinical trials. Would your treatment or approach or order of preference be different for people with a higher Fitzpatrick score when it comes to oral therapies like TIC2 inhibitors or JAK inhibitors? She posed a scenario here of a 63-year-old black female with a Fitzpatrick scale of 5, not being on any biologics in the past. The patient has no preference between oral versus injection, and there's no special sites involved. But if she was fitting in the category, and obviously we don't have all the parameters here, of a patient with moderate to severe psoriasis. I think it's an important question. Patients with richer skin tones are generally underrepresented in psoriasis clinical trials. In fact, there's also gender underrepresentation as well, too. These are typically patients, Fitzpatrick skin type one or two, white males. And so, you know, it behooves us to try to be more inclusive, particularly in our real world data sets in terms of what those effects are. But I think rather than in the absence of specific data, the actual selection of an advanced therapy based on a patient's ethnicity or skin type, it's really around how quickly we offer these patients advanced therapy. Because some of the sequelae around inflammatory skin can Conditions, including psoriasis, is this post-inflammatory dispigmentation, which quite frankly is disfiguring. And as dermatologists, we're in the business of healing people's skin, but also making sure that people don't have stigmata or figurement as the sequelae of their skin disease. And so if this patient population, this particular described patient is at higher risk of having scarring and dispigmentation from their condition, their disease should be recognized earlier. They should be referred earlier. There should be comments made about the burden of dispigmentation and the referral that would reflect in, in terms of triage. And then rather than being prescribed topicals or less efficacious medications to start, to try to be, quote unquote, more aggressive with therapy. So I guess that would be my global comment. She would try to pick something that would work and work faster. But in terms of specifically selecting one agent over another, in the absence of data, I don't know that I could answer that accurately. But I'm interested in what Dr. Yadav thinks hmm. about that. I couldn't agree more. You've described it so aptly in terms of this definition of severity varying by a person's sort of lived experience and how that manifests on their skin. And as I know, both Dr. Joseph and I have practices that do tend to have probably a large variety of skin types. Uh, I do firsthand have lots of experience with patients whose post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is as bad to them as their disease itself, if it was a psoriasis that was inflamed, that PIH and managing that PIH is equally a big part of the conversation. And so I couldn't agree more that sort of sophisticated therapies, advanced therapies are equally, if not more deserving in these populations, given that the burden of disease can be so high in its sequelae. 
you know, excellent points you've made. I want to ask one more question. How, how prep, when we're training our clinicians of tomorrow, whether it be in primary care or in dermatology and residency, how comfortable are they in identifying skin lesions like atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, in skin of color or richly pigmented skin, and also understanding these unique sequelae that might be more presented in darker skin phenotypes like PIH. Can we be moving the dial more in this area? And I've heard about ethnodermatology and obviously a lot's being talked about it, but how comfortable do you think from a frontline perspective are clinicians? I think there's two issues and I don't think as a specialty we've gotten really clear how we articulate these two sort of categories. But I think about skin type, skin color, but then I also think about sometimes there's cultural baggage that also gets associated with skin type and skin color. And so I think access to patients who are, let's say, brown or black, who can often also be patients who are immigrants, who can also often be patients who speak English as a second language. I think then there get these layers of barriers to care. And it's possible that the clinician in those two minutes you have to make a diagnosis, to come up with a sophisticated therapy, to counsel a patient on those things, it's challenging. And so we've seen it in the literature that patients who fall into these categories are less likely to receive advanced therapies. And so I think learners really do need to sort of check themselves. Same with physicians who've been in practice a long time, physicians new to practice, in terms of taking a pause and realizing that this can have significant impact and or benefit on that patient and finding a way to navigate an advanced therapy for them to try to overcome those language barriers, those cultural barriers, because otherwise these patients are not going to be able to access care that they really do need and that they deserve. I completely agree. I think it's such an important facet and it's something that we have to own as dermatologists as well too, to try to improve health equity, health justice, and make sure that people have equal access with the same sort of disease burden. One of the challenges, though, we do have here, we sort of alluded to it earlier, is we are a referral-based system, and so patients do have to get to us. And the referring provider needs to be familiar with the presentation of skin conditions to be able to give a name to it as well, because that helps with triage, you know? We have so many referrals. The referrals might say rash or skin. We don't know, but if we have a referral that's quite thoughtful, that can say this is moderate to severe psoriasis and that there's sequelae associated with it, that information on the referral is helpful to triage and for advocacy and for patients to access care quickly. And there is clearly an unmet need in non-dermatologists in terms of recognizing skin diseases across the board in various skin tones and skin types. I'm waiting for the day that we have AI-powered handheld skin checkers that can differentially diagnose and have everything programmed in for us on the primary care side. But anyhow. You know, clearly you've touched on a topic that is of a considerable importance to Dr. Joseph and I. And so as a thought exercise, you know, I put it out there to the listeners to really think about remuneration in healthcare in dermatology. You get paid more to cut out a skin cancer than you do to treat a patient who speaks English as a second language. Hmm. And, uh, you know, just sort of tends to sometimes indirectly bias and change the way we treat people and how we approach people and the diseases we're willing to see. And I think the incentives are not necessarily aligned at a systems level to facilitate the treatment of underserviced populations. And so I don't have a solution 
to this grand problem we have of our healthcare system. But I would, you know, put it out there to our listeners that that there are some real systemic problems with how we are rewarded for the diseases that we treat and how they don't necessarily encourage or enable us to do better for people who are underserviced. All right. So some structural issues. I almost feel we can wrap this conversation to a separate episode. I mean, it's very interesting. And I think there's very important conversations to be had. We have a few more minutes left. So I want to just move on with just the last few questions we have for you. So this is from Katie in Toronto. We had to choose the hometown hero there. So we know that adherence is a vital part of the treatment strategy. Do you think adherence is a concern for ducravacitinib compared to injectable biologics? If patients skip or miss a few doses, is it difficult to go back to baseline if that's even being looked at? I think the neat thing about oral agents is the theoretical ability to kind of come on and off of them. And this is the paradigm we're entering with upacitinib in atopic dermatitis that's kind of exciting. And I definitely have said to my patients, the way I would have typically treated someone on methotrexate for atopic dermatitis, I might have said, if you're clear for six months, you can come off the methotrexate and let's see how you do. Because atopic dermatitis is a little bit different than psoriasis. I don't know how I will approach psoriasis with the mechanism of action of an oral agent that, you know, also selectively blocks part of that jack pathway, but through tick 2 think that People will do whatever they want, whether their clinician tells them to or not. And the ability to recapture on an oral agent certainly seems more likely than with a biologic. And so I do think from a compliance perspective, it might allow the less compliant of our patient population to have a bit more flexibility and freedom. So it is an interesting thought exercise as to what they'll be able to do with this treatment down the road. Okay. It's a very patient-specific discussion because some patients, it's what is the value add for them. If the pill makes them better, they continue to take it. So when I compare my patients who are on a biologic versus an oral targeted therapy for their atopic dermatitis, for example, I actually don't see any difference in adherence because, you know, if they stop taking their oral medication and their symptoms come back, that sort of pushes them to want to continue to take it. But I do think it's important to have a good discussion with the patient up front to determine what's important for them. Do they travel a lot? Do they want to be able to put it in their carry-on? Do they have to want to worry about a needle or an injection? Do they have a loved one who's giving them the injection? So, you know, and that's not possible for them because they're going away to school and they want to be able to take it orally. So there's a million and one stories that can form the fabric of what is important to a patient in terms of taking the medication. It's hard to have a blanket answer there, but I don't think it's a barrier at all to have an oral medication. So really many factors when deciding whether it's a pill versus injection in the real world, and you involve the patient in that decision-making. Some really interesting tidbits there, and I think it'll be exciting as we get closer to potentially seeing this in the hands of prescribers and patients, how things will play out. Now, the question that you've all patiently been waiting for, I'm sure, all our listeners, and we probably need a drum roll here. What are your thoughts, based on our conversation today, what are your overall thoughts about the place of a molecule or a TIC2 inhibitor like ducravacitinib? in the patient journey, in the treatment of moderate to severe psoriasis. If, for example, you had a patient walk in the door who fits the diagnosis of moderate to severe psoriasis, ZBSA, quality of life, all of those boxes are checked, and no preference for oral versus injectable, where do you see this therapy? Also, for those who are biologic naive versus bio-experienced, any thoughts about that? Well, I think it's nice to have another mechanism of action in the toolbox. And as part of that, I would 
probably consider it in any patient who didn't have other driving comorbidities as first line compared with a traditional biologic. I think it's uniquely placed, though, to also fit where we might have gone with a premolast, an oral agent, because again, it's risk perception with patients. Sometimes patients think, oh, going on the injectable or the needle, that's the heavy duty drug. And going on an oral medication is a step before that. So for those patients who, you know, we would have considered a premolast because of patient preference, also I would consider this medication there. And then I guess Dr. Yadav brought up the fact that in the poetic one and two study, 40% of patients were bioexperienced. And so I think you can also consider this medication in a patient who has failed a previous biologic as well, too. So I think you could consider this medication in a number of patient scenarios. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. I think the dream is that we would find a way in advance to know which patients are going to respond to which drug optimally, but we don't have those biomarkers. We haven't gotten that good at being able to understand the different pathways that each individual patient psoriasis takes. And so in the absence of that information, having another tool in our toolbox, so to speak, as Dr. Joseph has said, it really does broaden the options for patients. It also begs the idea that could we combine it with biologic therapy to give people an even better response? We all have those patients who have severe and resistant disease and who have failed multiple advanced therapies and for whom there is severe joint disease and crippling sort of prediction for how they're going to age and how their disease is going to progress. So I really feel so lucky that our patients have yet another option and that the saturation of the market hasn't deterred the development of drugs in this area because the need is there. And I think as we get our hands on these medications and experience them in real world, we'll be able to better hone in on who and how it's going to fit into our practices. Well, couldn't have said it better. Those are excellent points. And going back to one thing you mentioned about using predictive AI to identify these biomarkers, I think you'd be the next Elon Musk if you were able to do that. So maybe it's a side project that we'd have to further explore with both of you. But we really appreciate your time for joining us today from the East Coast. And I said that on purpose, uh, Dr. Joseph. Um, I'm kidding. And we'll have to have a second round of conversation around skin of color and psoriasis. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for including us and to all the listeners for tuning in. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks again for the great conversation. So what do you think? Did Dr. Joseph and Dr. Yadav settle the Jack versus Tick debate? Let us know and drop us a line at info at skinandjoints.com. Also, Aaron, you forgot to mention, as a reminder, we kind of have to say this. The opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. Thank you to BMS for supporting today's episode with an independent medical educational grant. Let's chat soon.